there have been times that I almost was ended up bankrupt. There have been times that I thought I was going to fail uh, to the point when at one point in Genesis, I had my rent was due, my electric was due. I was uh, two months behind on my car insurance. I had no food. I had $10 to my name and a business partner who was- You are listening to Josh Halter of The BioDude. Now, if you are someone who is well into the world of bioactivity, you almost certainly are aware of the company, The BioDude. This is a company that's only been around for a few years, but it seems to be growing at a pretty impressive rate. Now, at the end of the conversation, we do get into all of those bioactive questions. So we kind of start at the beginner level, how to set it up, microfauna, drainage layer, what substrates to use and whatnot. And then we get into a little more advanced topics such as bioactivity for snakes and arid setups. And I shouldn't say they're advanced, they're just things that aren't as popular in the hobby. So if this is going to be a great conversation for everybody, whether or not you're just getting into bioactivity or you've been doing bioactivity for a long time and you need some pointers. And even for me, I've been doing bioactivity for a long time, but there's a lot that I learned in this conversation. I can't wait to apply it uh, in my new Day Gecko Viv that I'm working on right now. You know, And the middle and the beginning of this podcast really discuss and we really get in and see kind of how much passion Josh has for this company and how much passion he has for the work that he does and how much he's sacrificed. You know, even in that very beginning of the clip, you start to see he had to really grind to get to where he is today and that's what I found most fascinating about this it would be impossible not to want to support this company after listening to this podcast so uh, I hope you enjoy it before we get into that as usual if you'd like to support the show please share it with your friends share it to everybody share it on Instagram and Facebook that helps me out a ton if you'd like please add a review on the Apple podcasting app it's very simple you can just hit five stars if you're uh, enjoying the show that much that would be fantastic and if you'd like to pick up an animals at home t-shirt you can find those at animals at slash shop as a reminder at the end of September, September 28th and 29th in Rodea, New Mexico, there is the Advancing Herpetological Husbandry Conference. This conference looks incredible. I highly recommend uh, going to check it out if you have the time, if you're in the area or if you have uh, you know, a couple of days of vacation. It looks like it's going to be incredible. I will leave all the links to that in the show notes as well as in the description. Here is my conversation with Josh. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I, I have to tell you, usually before an interview, I really start to, I prep and really cover what I want to cover in an interview. And for this one, for the last 20 minutes, I've just been reviewing my favorite lines from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's so many. There, I mean, there's an infinite. I was literally laughing to myself in my kitchen like 10 minutes ago at, at, at some of those lines. So I'm guessing you must be a massive fan of that movie. or I am. And it got me through... A lot of it sounds stupid, but it got me through a lot of hard portions in my life. Just I'd be down and I'd watch it and I'd instantly be in a better mood because that guy, he doesn't care. Yeah, doesn't care about anything. He just does him. And, you know, that's that's me. I just do me and, you know, people accept or they don't. And that's that the dude is the same way. So works out. How long have you like had the nickname the dude? Oh man. So it goes back a while to, I would say at the vet, I was a veterinary technician before I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And at the veterinary hospital I worked at called East York Veterinary Center in New York, Pennsylvania is people would just call me dude instead of Josh, because I give off this laid back, even though I'm like a, my attention spans like a fruit fly and I'm a very energy efficient dude, but I'm still really, yeah, you know, that's, you know, and people just, you know, people dig it. And that's just how it coined. And, uh, you know, when we came up, when I came up with the bio dude, it was after everything with Genesis, you know, closed down and I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do with my 
thought I was, I thought I was done. And I was so distraught. I had all my friends over and, you know, we, we had some brewskis and we watched the big Lebowski and they're like, you can't give up, Josh, you know, dude, you can't give up. And I said, bio dude. And they go, bio dude, bio dude. And then, and then, and it happened like that. That is amazing. <laughs> that, yeah. so that, that's very cool. And uh, I, I'm a very big picture guy, so I would love to kind of build up that story to, to, from the beginning uh, briefly. We don't have to. We don't have to go back to uh, your birth or anything. But <laughs> what? Um, tell me about the first reptile that you got. The first reptile I personally got to have as a pet, yeah, was a leopard gecko named Bob that I purchased from that fish play that my mom purchased from that fish place that pet place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, for me. Um. I got Bob when I was, it was right after my parents got divorced. So they got divorced when I was 13. So about 13 and a half to 14 is when I got my, when I was allowed to get my first one. But I was always sneaking, you know, ones I'd find outside in, like, because I lived in Pennsylvania. So I'd find salamanders and newts, you know, when you could actually find caudates in the wild, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, and especially up, you're some more, I've, obviously you're in Texas now, but in Pennsylvania, it's, you, you got to really dig to find some good reptiles sometimes. Yeah, I, I will have to say, like, I, I love, I really miss Pennsylvania. Like, I love finding all the different Shalomians. There's a lot of different turtles, um, especially the, the, the eastern wood turtles and the eastern boxies. I'd go to the same spot year after year after year and find the same specimens. And it was, it was cool because you could see how they, like, the changes from past season to the next season to the next season. And even though, like, I didn't get to have them, I still, to me, I felt like I had this weird bond with them, even though they were wild animals, because I'd find them year after year after year. And that just, I did that. I did that for years, man. I, my, my wife, the first date we went on, I took her to a swamp to catch snapping turtles. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure she was into it. Hopefully, or <laughs> she just uh... yeah. I I have a picture of her holding a small snapper and with doing and doing ironically a thumbs up, and you could just see the look of terror on yeah. her face because you know you know how snappers are. They put their heads halfway back and they're just chomping at you. Yeah, yeah. You didn't that's, know what to do. That's I, awesome. I digress. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. So you had Bob, and I know when I'm. When I was reading your bio off of, on, on your website, it says that you started bioactive relatively early in your reptile yeah. pet career. So, so that was that like maybe fifteen years ago or something like that. I mean, about that. Yeah. So, so I I first started using like the the EcoWorth a long, long, long time ago. This was back in two thousand and three. But before that, um, I would go outside and I would literally just dig it up myself and I would always find springtails. They'd always just show up and I was like, our first time I saw it, I was like, what is this? And then, you know, I started doing a little bit of research and then my friend Jonathan Klein, Jonathan, if you're listening, I miss you. Um, he's the one that like kind of educated me about that and I was a lot younger at that point. Um, and then after that, I just really started tweaking my own mixes, especially with the leopard gecko. Like my leopard gecko, I started off with coconut choir, sand, and like some other rocky, rocky ingredients that I find outside because Pennsylvania is really lime rich in the soil. So, you know, it took a lot of figuring out preventing like methane buildup. I've actually, I've actually like, I've actually had difficult experiences with viper geckos. 
Um, and I kept them on my very, very first mix and the humidity at the very bottom just wasn't aerating appropriately. And I would move it and dig it and then methane would kick up. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I can't keep my animals on this. So there was a lot of trial and error on my part and working at one of my jobs at that fish place, that pet place in the reptile room for over three years. Um, you know, they would always just, they would bring in like the eco worth, like I mentioned earlier, and that's all they'd let me use. And I'd get really frustrated because they, they kept losing their Pac-Man frogs and they didn't understand why. And I was like, well, you have to change it out every week, every two, every, every two to three weeks because they're sedentary. They sit in their urine, their osmotic pressures get thrown off and then they get skin infections and die and quick. And, you know, and that example is everywhere. And I'm not just saying that about the product, just that, that low advancement and the base, base, base level of husbandry has never changed. All a majority of these big name vendors, they, it's all the same stuff, just marketed differently, all from the same suppliers, just marketed differently and packaged differently. And while there have been great innovations, dude, I love Pangea. I love what he's done. I love what Josh's frogs has done for the, for the amphibian community, what Marty's done with Miss King, with like all in Arcadia, all that's been amazing. But when I look at the United States and I look at just the base level husbandry for substrate, humidity retention and drainage, it's not, it was non-existent and that's not fair. It wasn't fair to them. And that really drove me around when I was about 16 years old to try to start figuring it out. That, that's really interesting because I mean, even 15 years ago or 13 years ago, whatever it was, it, it's, there was not a lot, like the hobby was still so new that it's almost like a risk, like going outside and digging up to your own dirt. But, but you, you clearly saw a problem that you, you just thought you would try to fix. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, you know, and the biggest thing that like, if I, I love all reptiles, dude, but I've always been a frog guy. I like my specialty has always been tree frogs. Um, but you know, where I've worked, I've worked at pet stores and I've seen just, how many of them are lost just in the general day-to-day -day operations of the hobby as a whole. And it makes you feel sick to your stomach because at the end of the day, it's, it's about profits and it's about, you know, what can I scale? That's the cheapest to get the most out at once. And that's what was wrong with this hobby. That was, and that is what has been consistently changing, in my opinion, over these last 15 years with these awesome entrepreneurs going out and accomplishing what they want and changing what they feel is wrong. And, you know, I used a lot of, you know, I look at a lot of other people with what they're doing too. And I really try to base myself all off of them in a subtle way that I'm still my own, but you know, that I can still make the same type of changes and advancements that they did. And, you know, cause again, it's, 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 it's all about, it's all about the animals, man. It's all exactly. about making sure they can take care of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is just about progressing. We can't go from zero to a hundred right away, but moving that the needle over every, every chance we get is super important. So even at that young age, you saw that there was a hole in the hobby. Uh, in, t in terms of your head as a career, you said you went into the sort of a vet tech role to begin with so were you just always wanting to go into an animal career without exactly knowing yeah so not to get too deep into it my parents went through a really bad divorce when i was 13 
um, which I raised, essentially raised my, raised myself, but I was pretty much left alone because they were too busy doing what they were taking care of. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance. Um, I got a certification in landscaping, but I was real, I'm skinny. You know, people would look at me and they'd be like, yo, this guy can't do it. Even though I got like most creative at the Pennsylvania farm show for by design, but I digress. Um, I knew I wanted to be with animals, but I didn't have the money to go to college. So that's why I got established as, you know, working in the vet field. And I was in the vet field for nine years. I started as a kennel and then worked my way up to a technician status. And I loved it. I, that's, that's how I met my wife. Um, she's a veterinarian now, but um, I knew I always wanted to work with animals. And dogs and cats gave me a really good view of what I wanted and what I didn't want. I love having dogs and cats as pets. I don't particularly like working on them as much just because the the sad end of it with the euthanasias and people not wanting to spend the money to take care of them is a little draining, to put it lightly. Um, so that's when I started Genesis Exotics with my brother when I wanted a career change and it just didn't work out. I moved down to Texas to take it serious with him and it just wasn't a right fit. So that's when, you know, that got dissolved and BioDude came into play in January of 2017. But I knew I always wanted to do something with animals. I knew I really, I always loved reptiles. I always loved being around them. And I loved learning about them and stuff like that. It was just really hard to find a, 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 a job that could pay the bills yeah. and, and have the same type of opportunities that, another type of career can offer you as far as, you know, mental health, as far as financial health, as far as, as, as everything, you know, how that goes. Well, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a really, that's a really interesting story. Just be, I mean, it's, um, it's amazing how much you've probably had to grind to get to where you are now. And so in terms of Genesis, like what was the business model difference between Genesis and BioDude? So Genesis Exotics really specialized in, uh, so I, I made my own fruit fly media, some other insect gut loaders, my bug grub, and I sold and I bred dart frogs and tree frogs. And that's originally what it was. It was a 50-50 split between my brother and I, and my brother designed the website um, and helped me and helped, you know, get the big picture stuff done while I handled the day to day. And the business model really wasn't with bio because that really isn't what he wanted to do. We really wanted to be just the frog aspect because I really looked up to Josh at Josh Willard at Josh's Frogs. I loved what they were doing for the education aspect of the hobby. And I saw that Texas had a huge open market for it because it didn't exist down here. And to be successful in this business, you have to create new customers via education and by, you know, and by making sure that that what you're offering is at, at an either a a next level to create that solid expectation that they're providing best because to me if i compare genesis and the bio dude my number one accomplishment between the two if i take out the financials and the other success is just the level of reach on the education stance that i've been able to get done to get people to keep reptiles and amphibians the right way Genesis didn't really offer me that. Genesis offered me the ability to breed frogs, to sell frogs. And to be quite honest with you, doing it in Texas was very hard for an online business because I hated, I hate shipping animals. I hate it. It is, it, 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 I, like, I, I, I didn't lose a lot in shipping, but 
the frogs come in stressed and then it makes it harder for the people to take care of them sometimes. And I just, I really hated spending months and months on raising froglets and I sell them. And then two weeks later they die because somebody who didn't want to listen to me or listen to what I had to say, do it. And it was really disheartening for me, Dylan, you know, and to be able to, and to be able to, you know, step back and look at, hey, what's really going to make me happy? What is it that I really want to accomplish here in my life with what I love to do? And honestly, that's, that's really what led me to the decision of, you know, closing down Genesis and moving forward with my life to, you know, to, to obviously choose the right path, as my wife would put it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and even breeding animals, you'll run into that what you just described, that sort of ethical dilemma where you're like, I love these animals, but now I'm creating them to a, to a life that's just going to stress them out and end in a sort of premature death type situation. So, and for anyone that's not <clears throat> ran a business before, it is insanely stressful. The, the amount of, especially going through a, a business closure like that, where you have to pull the plug, like the amount of just visceral, I can't, it's hard to describe, isn't it? It is. It's, so I am 31 and I have found three gray hairs on my head last month. They weren't <laughs> there before. Yeah. Now, in, in all seriousness though, it's, it's the gut feeling of you have to not be afraid to fail. And if you fail, you have to fall forward, not fall backwards. You have to be willing to make sacrifices and risks and just go f and just go for it and believe in yourself. That's the biggest thing is you have to believe in yourself that you can do it. And I mean, I look at everything that I've gotten done and I'm really happy with where I'm at, but dude, I haven't scraped the surface with what I want to do. I haven't, I have so much stuff in the works and I'm so excited. It's just, you know, you just got to take it a day at a time and you know, the transitioning the business from Genesis shutting that down, getting BioDude started, you know, that wasn't that bad, honestly. Like I started BioDude out of a storage unit with one plug and my house. And I remember I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning, I'd go to the storage unit that was about 95 to 150 degrees and I would make dirt until about 11 o'clock. And then I'd get to my house and I'd get all the orders, all the orders done, get them to FedEx, then I'd have to do customer service, then I'd have to take care of the animals. And that would take me probably about 60 hours a week until I was able to afford my first warehouse here where at my current location. But there have been times that I almost was ended up bankrupt. There have been times that I thought I was going to fail uh, to the point when at one point in Genesis, I had my rent was due, my electric was due. I was uh, two months behind on my car insurance. I had no food. I had $10 to my name and a business partner who was yelling at me, telling me I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't making the business enough money. And I almost became homeless. And if it wasn't for my parents bailing me out, you know, at that point they were begging me to come home to Texas. They were begging or, or come home to Pennsylvania. Just stop. You tried, didn't work out, but I persevered and I will remember that forever. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of tough stuff that just makes you a harder and a tougher individual. And, and you know, the analogy that I, I, I've been in business before and the, the analogy that I've come up with before is doing when you fail in business, it's like writing an exam and then failing 
and having no clue what you got wrong. Like never looking at the the answer sheet, never never having the thing graded back to you and saying these are where you got wrong. Like you just have no clue. You don't know how much you failed by. You don't know if it was like 1% or 100%. Like it's a very bizarre experience. Yep. And that's and that's what makes it so terrifying is it, and 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 the, it's just uh it's just the level of risk that can come with it, but I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I have 11, I have 11 full-time employees here. Um, I'll, I'll be offering health insurance by the end of the year. I offer simple IRAs with BioDude matching up to 3%, uh, sick days, holiday pay. Like one of my, when I started my business, not trying to digress really far, but when I was a veterinary technician or when I, you know, worked in warehouses, I always felt like an ant. I always felt disposable. My opinion was while it was, I was a good employee where a lot of times they listened to me sometimes, but other times I felt consistently unheard or underappreciated. And I promised myself that I would not have my business be like that. And I would not, I would not be like everybody else. And as of right now, I mean, I have very, I've had very little turnover and, you know, I'd always tell people that are coming in for interviews, if you really want to know what it's like to work here, go talk to each and every person here and they'll give you an honest answer. And I'm comfortable enough enough to you know do that. But sorry, I keep digressing. No, no, no. That's that's excellent. I like that. So when you started it, it was mostly just the soil base. Like is that you were you were creating soils to sell? Was that the first and sort of yep. one skew you had? That was it. I had I had a total of five a total of four skews, five skews that were my drainage layer, my four substrates. I then created my base bioactive kits, my bioactive kits, the species specific kits with plants that I was able to get. Um, and then uh, of course, like my diets, like my media that I have probably sold close to 15 tons of in my career, my bug grub, which I probably sold close to 12 tons of so far in my career um, in my springtail grub. I think my initial launch had 15 to 16 products on it plus all my kits. That's it. And oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, so tell me about that process of, of creating soil. Like how, how did you go about creating specific soil types? Uh, cool. you... So first what I did was I, 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 I started first researching different areas and I started literally looking at pictures of the, of the different areas and then the common types of plants in there. And then I started looking at the plant care. Do they like acidic? Do they like well-drained? Do they need this? Do they need this? And then I was able to cross-reference what I'm seeing with the plant care and then doing research on different ingredients to try and mimic that as closely as possible. My Terra Sahara took me, I want to say like six or six to eight years, I don't even know, to get it right. Because what's so hard about desert is that the substrate's heavy. It has to be heavy if you want to get it right. And when you get it heavy, that means it's going to want to compact. You need to make sure that when it compacts, it still aerates top to bottom because if it's not aerating, the aerobic bacteria is going to outcompete the anaerobic bacteria. Um, no, the aerobic, the good, the good bacteria is going to outcompete the, 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 the good, the bad bacteria is going to outcompete the, uh, the good bacteria. Sorry, it's been a long morning, <laughs> which is going to build up other things, uh, bad stuff like methane and other things like that that will cause your stuff to fail. So it was a lot of trial and error and a lot of um, and a lot of just in-depth testing to make sure that what I'm doing is actually going to last. I get a lot of criticism over my terraform 
uh, because I don't require a drainage layer for it. And but I look at my showroom and my corn snakes over over there. That's that terrarium has been set up for nine and a half years, dude, with the same dirt that I just kept using over and over again. We got Nagini. I bought this corn snake for my wife. It was five dollars and it was the size of an earthworm. I'm like, this thing's never going to survive. We had to feed it pinky heads. Wow. To, like to, to get it to get it started. And it survived. So I just kept using the dirt which is my firma over and over again as we increase the tank size. And now they're in a 75 gallon with a lot of really older substrate in it. Um, but after I was able to keep my bearded dragon Yoshi, which I had for nine years uh, on my, on my uh, pre Sahara mix is what I like to call it because one of my ingredients was very hard to find in Pennsylvania. Very hard to find. So I was very limited with what I could do with it. Uh, but after I was able to keep Yoshi on it, and then I saw how the air pockets were with being able to retain the tunnels and burrows, I knew I had it. Because it wasn't only about functionality, it's about nurturing their natural instincts of animals. Because you can sit there and you, and you, you, you can pick apart your husbandry as much as you want. But the most, besides lighting and heating, the most important thing is your base which is your substrate. That is the most important thing for A, their well-being, B, for shedding respiration and hydration, and honestly, C, for allowing them, I guess, instinctual nourishment. I can't, uh, my, my, my oscillated skinks that are in my Sahara, they've, they're live bearers. They've been breeding now for three years that I got from Sean Harrington, the frog whisperer, which I highly recommend you look into him. He's a great guy. Um, you know, they literally have a network of tunnels throughout the entire system. And every morning, the head female, she looks like a hot dog. She sticks her head up like a prairie dog. She does literally a 360 around. And then they come out one by one by one by one. That is, the, and that is nourishing of the wild side of them. As Arcadia so puts it eloquently, wild recreation. And it's great. And a lot of people lose sight. Like they see like bearded dragons bred on a commercial scale. They see leopard geckos bred on a commercial scale, but they're not domesticated. They are still wild animals. And somewhere along the lines, these products on the general scale forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that, it's a really interesting point because there, there's all these behaviors that are programmed into these animals that you will not see in a shoebox tub. And like, for example, you're, you're telling this story about this female kind of coming out and checking to make sure everything's safe. We you would have no clue that she would do that unless you put her in an environment that that promoted that behavior. You're you're exactly right. And you know, I've because of space issues, I've had to like prevent my, some of my animals from breeding. Every single animal here is trying to breed. Every single one. Um, you know, just to put it, you know, how I know it's the best, my carpet chameleons have laid eggs in their enclosure. My Borneo ear frogs have laid eggs in their enclosure. My red eyes are breeding in their enclosure. My Cuban nitinoles are breeding in their enclosure. My emeralds are breeding in their enclosure. Cinnamons are breeding in their enclosure. Uh, I can keep going on and on. And, but I don't not doing anything. They are that comfortable enough without any external stimuli. When you look at tree frogs in general, I want to breed tree frogs. Everybody will tell you the same thing, that you need a rain chamber. 
Some species you do. Some species a rain chamber is necessary, like a, like you're like mainly phylomedusas, dumpies, uh, just because of the amount of water that they need. But if you, but with how I have them set up, majority of my tree frogs are just breeding without any extra stimuli in the cage. And, you know, when, when you have to sit and pick up the frogs, put them in another container, you know, that really stresses them out. Or honestly, for any animal to create a breeding box that isn't inside the cage, it makes it, I don't know, that, 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 that's not how it goes down in the wild. Right. Oh yeah. No, that's a hundred percent right. And so, so I guess the soils and the, the substrate is really the niche that you, you grabbed a hold of. And at this point, you, are you guys still mixing the soil and, and packaging oh, yeah. yourself? So that's all in-house. Everything I do is all from my, from my diets to my substrates to everything. So I don't match. So my manufacturer, my LEDs and my new solar grows that are going to be released tomorrow. Um, they're not, you know, I don't manufacture those here. I get them manufactured overseas, but everything else I mix by, we mix by hand. We visually inspect by hand. And, uh, in about two months, my bug grub, my media, my springtail grub, my flower power, which I'm really excited to announce here coming out soon, um, is all going to have a guaranteed analysis as well as a nutrition label that states the calcium phosphorus ratios, the beta carotene ratio, the retinol ratio the vitamin A ratio to show people that I'm actually that what I'm saying with the vitamin A giving the carotenoids that they need to synthesize the vitamin A is actually in these ingredients as well as having individual lot numbers and batch numbers. So that way it's, you know, you're getting that small batch quality and that is what we want here at the bio dude. We really want to make sure that we're always doing the best. I will never send my, I will never manufacture my mixes anywhere else but in-house i will never get it done overseas i will never order containers of it packaged from thailand or vietnam and have it come over here on a boat like some of the other big guys do i will never do that yeah well i mean that's i think really reassuring to a lot of people for one and people love to see things stay you know stateside in terms of business just just economically but oh absolutely but the quality you're absolutely right the quality just degrades very quickly when you ship i mean obviously you're importing i'm sure you import like wood and cork from overseas like that sort of thing but Some anything that anything that's been has to be mixed is done by hand by you guys yeah it's actually funny so i got this like giant you have it has a handle so imagine a jackhammer except instead of the base of a jackhammer ha it's a giant metal spoon thing that spins so we put the mix of the we put like the diets in these special bins and you hold it down and it mixes everything and uh, we have to wear these special gowns and stuff. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's unreal. But yeah, man, I, I will, one thing I will never do. And one thing I tell my employees every day or not every day, but every meeting is that we will not be like everybody else. Everybody seems to have issues with scaling, scaling their business to keep the pro to keep the quality of the product where it was since inception while keeping the quality up while growing your business and making sure that nothing changes. And it happens to a lot of businesses. They get big and then they have to change some things, which can sometimes limit the quality of the products that they're doing. And I, if, if I have to take that route, I won't sell it. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Well, I think that's a great idea. And so do you have a plan for for t to scale it to keep everything here, or is that I mean, if yeah. it's if it's a secret under wraps thing, you can you, you, don't, oh, you don't. No. 
So I actually just found out yesterday, I got approved for a business loan, an SBA business loan for around 600, 600,000. Um, I did, I was trying to buy a property, which we put under contract, but it didn't work out, which I just found out yesterday, which is pretty disheartening. So now I have 90 days to find a new warehouse. I'm trying to find a warehouse that's between 10,000 and 16,000 square feet. But my plan is to be out of my current space and into my new building by the beginning of January. And once I have that new space, um, I really, the, the sky is the limit is pretty much what I'm going to say with that. Yeah. Oh, really that's excited. awesome. I, I was going to ask what makes BioDude so successful, but I think you're making it very obvious. I think the, the passion that you have and, and the Thank vision you. that you have, is, is it's very clear. Was entrepreneurship something from a kid that you were interested in, or is this just something that you found along the way? Yeah, dude. So during, so we lived around a lot of fur forests, so Christmas time. And we, my dad had a beach house before my, yeah. Um, so we, my mom and I would collect oyster shells and I would paint Santa Claus faces on them and drill a hole in them and turn them into ornaments. I'd sell those. I would take the tree fur and I would make wreaths and decorative stuff out of that. I'd sell it. Um, I would set up lemonade stands when I was a kid. I'm not kidding, dude. Um, at one point, I turned my room into a store and pretended customers were coming in. That's when I was like eight or nine. Um, it, it's always been in here, man. I've always, I, but I never knew what, what journey was meant for me until honestly it clicked to me when I met my wife because I was having issues when to put it plainly, there's no, there's not a lot of HR and private practice veterinary hospitals. And after I disclosed my relationship with my wife, some other other higher end up people got a little jealous and in my career they were started going down the drain quickly thereafter so i was really upset because i was like this is really unfair and she's like you should do something with your reptiles baby you are so good at it and she just kept saying it saying it until my brother and i started talking and it just happened and then yeah. here i am well there's nothing more uh, there's nothing better than than marrying the you know that deep entrepreneurship drive with a passion because like it's hard to be an entrepreneur and run a business that you're not passionate about and it's it, oh yeah and so that's sort of the key to success so in terms of i know now you guys have a wide variety of products obviously your soil and your grub and it, are you shipping do you ship live plants as well or how does that work so live plant yes we ship live plants everywhere but like alaska hawaii um in in the 48 continental um, live plants can be tricky because the USDA likes to get down on you, especially in Texas. If you're shipping to Florida or California, you need to have phytosanitary certificates to prove right. that A, they don't have fire ants and B, that they don't have nematodes or other stuff like that. Um, I, we always ship our plants with all of our kids bare root. I would say we're pretty good at it. I mean, there's all, you can always get better. I actually just hired a full-time plant person. That's their job. Um, he actually starts in two weeks, which is really going to help me out because, you know, I know a good amount about plants, but AJ is, you know, he's, he's like me, how I am with reptiles, but plants, you know, and I'm so excited to get him in here because he's going to teach me some stuff. Yeah. Um, do you guys grow help, everything in house? You guys, or do you so, order stuff in? So some stuff we grow, not a lot of it. Um, the majority of the products that I get, I actually found uh, specialized growers uh, from uh, from south from uh, southeast uh, that grow them in the way 
that I needed them to grow. But growing them that way poses challenges for me. Uh, so they have to use really hydroscopic soil, which means it's super absorptive because they're not using other things in it to help it grow faster. So a lot of times when a lot of times when when plants get in, if they have issues, I'll sprinkle some of my BioShot on top, depending if, if they need help. Uh, but to put it plainly, dude, I go through an 18 wheeler of plants every two weeks. Wow. Yeah, wow. Dude. it's crazy. crazy. And it sucks because they that 18 wheeler, they can't fit in my warehouse. So I have to take my Nissan and the big Cosby van. Two of my employees have to go meet them at the parking lot, load up between 100 and 180 plant boxes in the back. Then we have to unload it. Then we have to unpack everything. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, every two weeks, dude. It's great. That's it's incredible. my favorite. Everybody yeah. loves plant day here. You say, what, what, what's today? Plant day. And they all get really excited. <laughs> well, it's really amazing. I mean, so the bio dude really for anyone that is not familiar with, I'm sure most people are, is it's really a one-stop shop. If, if you're, if you're wanting to start from scratch with, with going bioactive, you can essentially get everything but the animal from, from you guys. And I, you know, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I encourage a lot of people that I've had, I have so many people reach out to me, like, you know, bio dude, I'm in Australia. Can you please provide me a, ba a basic mix that'll get me through? Or, you know, we love all bio here. You know, there is, well, you know, when I first, one of my first real challenges as an entrepreneur, and I'm not going to lie, is when my business really started taking off, I got a lot of hate directed at me just from, people that had no business and doing what they were doing. And it was, a lot, all, it, was, it was all this false, bad stuff, people going out of the way on social media to do this or do that. And it really did bother me to the point when I am just, you know, I've had to send out a cease and desist to somebody just last week because a customer came forward and she gave me pictures of what they were doing. And I'm just like, okay, that's a little ridiculous. And sometimes like some of the hate, it was starting to get to me psychologically, especially when, especially when, when Wicked died, you know, that was, that was, that was awful for me. Um, even though I have my wife and stuff, you know, he got me through pretty much everything. And at that point, that's when the noise was the absolute worst. I, it got to the, I got, I was getting so, you know, worked up and upset about it that, you know, my wife had to like really reassure me that it's okay. It's, you're not doing anything wrong. This is just what happens. And people are going to do this because they're jealous or because they, you know, they just, they just, that's just how people are, I guess is what she so said. So it was so, just people in the industry sort of bashing the products and whatnot? A little bit, you know, yeah. um, you know, not really bashing the products, just bashing me. Just being like, you know, this, you know, this guy's a bleep, you know, this, to put it lightly, this little ginger POS is such a bleep and idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I had, I've had people come to my business and try to copy my stuff. Um, there was a startup, I guess, in North Texas. She came here and she bought two of everything, which I didn't catch. Six months later, boom, there we go. I've had other people try to sneak into my manufacturing when I've had to have my manager escort them out. And then that guy went and worked for a quote unquote another company and then boom i see their version of my sahara on their table and then they ended up stopping doing that in a month because guess what methane so i've had a lot of people try and put me like not necessarily put me down just really go out of the way to try to def just try to like you be like you know 
you can do all this yourself. His products are a waste of money or this and that. I'm not doing like I'm not doing this for the money. I want to make it really clear to everybody. I'm doing this because we got to change the way that people perceive and keep these animals as pets. They have such a negative stigma and they have this stupid hue over them, marking them as disposable pets. And it is wrong. It is wrong. And we as a community need to step up, work together and do what's best for the animals to start instead of trying to get at each other's throats. And that's what, that's what upset me the most is I, I don't even know. I don't even know who these people were. I never did business with, I don't know anything. And then boom, there it was, but it's been a lot better and I've found ways to be able to deal with it and to be able to not have it affect me here. And my staff really helps me um, a lot with dealing with that, with helping me reinforce me and that, that I can believe in myself because heck, even me going for this small business loan that I just got approved for, man, that it was terrifying to me because if I fail, it's, you know, if you fail, you're not going to pay back $600,000. They're going to, they're going to take everything that you have that they legally can take. And, you know, but at the same time, dude, that drives me, you know, and I said the same thing to my mom after everything went down with my brother and with all, when all the noise was going on, I was like, mom, I let this fuel me. I was like my entire life. People have been, I've always been the underdog is what, is what she would say. Like I'd always be picked last for basketball or I'd always be, you know, you know, be the, be that guy that was always in the corner reading a book. I was never, I was never out, out, out doing stuff with people. I was always the loner and I've always kind of, always kind of been that way. So sometimes I guess, I guess that's just the reasoning. I don't know. Well, look, I, I, um, I'm a swim coach, like part of my job, like my actual job is I coach swimming and I've always, I was an athlete for 20 years almost. And so part of the reason I love sports so much is because it exposes like the heart in people and this like you almost see somebody's soul in sport in ways that you don't normally see anywhere else but entrepreneurship obviously is another area another arena where you see that and i think you clearly have this like deep burning it, it it's it's the only way to describe it is heart and and there, there, there it's, it's hard to describe how much shit <laughs> someone can put up with uh, you know, yeah. not everybody can handle that. And it's it's really amazing that you've been able to sort of just slog your way through that. Slog it. That is the best adjective <laughs> that I could think of to describe. Is that a to word? To describe <laughs> it, you know, um, it, 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 it's always one thing after another. There has never been a point in my career as an entrepreneur that I've always been, I've been able to, I've been able to like have nothing going on or be able to just, not have a single worry. Like when my wife and I were on our honeymoon in Belize, like I would like, I left my phone in the hotel room pretty much the entire time. Just so that way I wouldn't be, I don't want to say reachable, but so that way I could take that mental time that I need because you know, if you are going to go for it, which I tell everybody, if you want to go for it, go for it. Because if you put the work in, anything is possible. Um, you know, but it, it, it's just one of those things like you just got to accept it and keep going for it. I mean, over the summer, I started doing educational talks to kids called the Reptile Experience Houston, which I actually just filed for my nonprofit for. So I'm hoping that uh, what I can do with it is use it as an education tool that I just pro bono go to different churches and summer camps and just educate kids about reptiles. Um, 
I did four I did four different ones this summer so far, and I brought about six animals. I pull them out and talk about them between 60 and 80 kids in each one, I think it was. And, you know, just those reactions, like when I pulled out my, my carpet python, those kids lost their minds. They lost their minds. It was great. And just seeing that, just seeing that appreciation at a young age, getting kids in the right mindset that, you know, snakes aren't evil. You know, if you see them, you don't cut their heads off. You just appreciate them for what they are. Or, you know, if you find a turtle, you know, don't touch it. You know, just, you know, just, just stuff like that. Just that, that small reinforcer to give them the appreciation that these animals deserve. And that must be like just a, a good rejuvenation, right? Like just sort of allow you to forget about the hate and working with kids is the best. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I wasn't trying to touch on like, like the hate. It's not as like, it's not that bad. I just wanted to try and say like, you know, I advocate at home mixes. If you don't want to go through me, that's cool. I encourage you to go bio in any means possible. It was just constantly like people thinking and saying that I don't encourage that or I'm against it, that you should only be spending money with me. No, yeah. and, not uh, at all. I just want it. I just want people to keep them, to keep them the right way. So, so let's talk, I, I want to chat about bioactive. <laughs> okay. let, let, let's, let's talk because I think it is growing a lot and in the hobby, it's becoming more and more prominent. So if we were to kind of walk through just the simple step, step, step-by-step -step process for someone, if, if like, let's pick a simple animal, like maybe a crested gecko, okay. if they wanted to set up a bioactive uh, enclosure, what, like, let's start at the base. What, okay. So since you're dealing with a tropical or a neotropical climate, you're going to want to make sure that you have a drainage layer. So the drainage layer is going to uh, essentially capture any of the remaining water that isn't supposed to be in the substrate out of the substrate. When I talk about the drainage layer, I like to tell people, think of it as the earth's groundwater. So there's always a groundwater underneath all your layers of soil. What do you think that is? It is a natural drainage layer. That is just how the earth is, just like you have your tributaries and lakes and rivers and stuff like that. So there are different types of drainage layers that you can use. Um, you can use like the clay balls Lika, which you can get at any, you can get at Amazon, any hydroponic store. You can get my hydro grow. Um, you can use the grow stone. Uh, just keep in mind that grow stone, just like perlite, you can also use perlite, works great, is made of glass. So what they do, they end up cooking it at a really high degree, which causes it to expand, uh, you know, which then gives you your good drainage layer. Um, some people like to put a screen at the top. If you're using like my hydro grow because it creates a flat surface or perlite, you don't need it. But if you're doing a surface that is bumpy and uneven, that can create different variations of your substrate depth then you're going to want to have some type of divider over the screen layer because the last thing you want is soil to get stuck in a crack and slowly keep absorbing water and then pushing the water back up because of the soil's absorptive properties, so to speak. The next step, which is the most important step, is your is your substrate. So substrate, um, I, I'm always going to recommend my terrafauna. And I recommend a terrafauna because unlike like your ABG and other things like that, this is designed to hold a little bit more water. Instead of ABG is designed to get wet and then water just goes right through it. Like a, like a, like a, a bunch of green beans in a, in, a, uh, in a drainer, you run water over the green beans and it just goes, the green beans are wet, 
but the water just flows right on through down to the bottom. That is a great example of ABG. The fauna is going to hold a lot more moisture, but aerate top to bottom perfectly. So what that's going to do is that's since it holds more moisture and it's constantly putting more out, that's going to help with your humidity spikes throughout the day. So when you're dealing with neotropical lizards such as crested geckos, gargoyle geckos, some species of, um, well, they're more montane, you're, uh, you're, you're a platus that like to have humidity spikes throughout the day, this allows you to do that with little to no misting. Whereas if you're using like ABG, which will still work, by the way, it'll work great, you know, you can, you're going to be misting it significantly more because it just, water just passes through it and it stays wet. The most important part, if you're going to be mixing soil at home, you, you never want to use straight coconut choir. Never, ever, 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 ever use it straight. And if you want to use it straight, you need to change it out every two weeks because it gets really acidic because of the pH. It doesn't drain well. The fact it doesn't drain at all, and it just keeps absorbing water and water and water. And frogs or crested geckos in general, you know, you let the soil just get waterclogged like that, you're going to have nasties build up. And when you're in an enclosed environment like that, those nasties are significant. Their byproducts are significantly worse than where it was if we were outside. It's the same principle if you're walking through a swamp and you step down and that nasty smell of rotten eggs comes up, that's methane. That's, that's all that organic matter getting stuck down there and being broken down by your funguses and bacteria in the sun and whatever detrivores are in the water or elsewhere. So, you know, so what, what, what is the fauna made out of? Like, what's the ingredients in that? It's a mixture of things. Yeah. So it does have, uh, it does have a lot of different ingredients. So, this is what I will say. The fauna has, uh, has, has six parts to it right now. Um, and there is no, there, there's about 10% of a coconut product in there, but everything else is either meant for absorptive or draining or, or clumping purposes. But I really designed it to ensure that, um, how do I say this? To ensure, to make it as easy for the user as possible. If you wanted to try like an at-home mix, you can do like 40% peat uh, with like orchid bark, charcoal, uh, and then maybe if you can find it, some sand. That should work, but you just got to really watch your water levels and making sure that it's adequately mixed and that your everything is distributed right. Because again, if it doesn't, if it holds too much water, it's going to fail. If it, if it just drains water too effectively, you're going to be missed in the tank all the time to try to keep the humidity where it needs to be for that animal. That makes right. sense. Yeah. And that's what I always find like with mine, I always have lots of water in the drainage layer. Like, especially with my day gecko, who I miss like two, two, three times a day, there's yep. always water in there. Is that, is that something that I should have a drain for? Or like what, or is that you okay? Can. So as long as the water never goes past the drainage layer, you'll be okay. But you obviously want to make sure that you want to make sure because if your soil isn't aerating top to bottom, what do you think is happening as your water tries to evaporate? Yeah, it just starts to it just it, It'll stagnate. Yeah. And then that stagnating particle. So that's why it's so important that it aerates. But as long as your soil's aerating, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. And if it, and if it does get a little high, you can just siphon it out with a small tube. Or before, before you set the tank up, you can install like a bulkhead at the front of the tank. And then just like put a spigot type of thing with a at the end of it and drain it that way. That's how I used to do for dark frogs. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. 
So, so after the soil or after the substrate, I guess you probably have like leaf litter or. Yes. Yes. So, um, I, uh, there's a lot of different biodegradable options that you want. So your base biodegradables, you know, your leaf litter, your sphagnum moss, you know, those are great. There are other things that you can use cork bark pieces, palm bark, um, palm leaves, uh, 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 the, the, the paperback bark. And what you can do is break them all into really tiny pieces and mix it up to the soil. What's going to happen is that's really going to create microbial hotspots for my Bioshot to put the different um, or um, matter eating microbes in there to spread out faster, as well as create a bacteria and fungus hotspot that will essentially just keep putting essential good stuff into the soil as until it slowly is eaten and completely gone. And it also can become a hotspot if you choose to use microfauna, which I highly recommend. So that has a lot of different uses for it. There is never too many soil additives that you can put in there to help maintain the life of your soil. But what I like to tell people is the biodegradables and the, everything I talked about, think of it as the gas that drives the car with the substrate being the car. Because if you don't have the biodegradables, if you put the Bioshot in there, if you put the bugs in there, it's don't 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 put either of those in there. You, know, you put them in there without the biodegradables, it's not going to be as effective because there's no fuel for them to consistently revitalize the system. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And actually, like those are just three steps. It's fairly simple. Like for, if somebody yeah. wanted to get into it, it's not very very difficult to to sort of figure out for the first time. Yep. Yep. It's not. And. Uh, most people get a little intimidated by it's it it's it's the plants. Mm -hmm. People see the live plants and and they're like, I can't keep plants alive in my house. How the hell am I going to keep them alive in this tank? But you know, it all comes down to anybody. I'm telling you, anybody. If my dad, if my dad can do it, and he has, anybody can do it. I watched that <laughs> man kill a pothos plant. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't have pothos. Uh they are literally impossible to kill. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. But you know, it's okay. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a uh, that's and and that's why I was so happy with the Bioshock because that uh, that puts in organic fertilizer and a four 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 NPK ratio, so it gives the plants the nutrition they need. That's where people have trouble because they put the plants in the soil, but there's nothing in there yet. There's no nutrients. Yeah, you yeah you put in your springtails. Yeah, you put in your isopods, but they're not going to be shelling out nutrition and nitrogen and other things for your plants until they're established, and that's going to take a while. So a lot of people ask me, Josh, you know, can I put the animals in right away? Should I let it establish? You know, it, to me, you can go either way, dude. But see, I'm impatient. It's not like <laughs> when, a fish tank. Yeah, yeah. When 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 I build something, man, I just. I just want to see my critters in there. Yeah, I want to get them in there as long as it's not like siliconed or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about, um, I, obviously you have a misting system set up and do you use misters and foggers or mostly misters and sometimes foggers? So my entire operation when it comes to the care of the animals and automate, is automated from the misting system to the, uh, to the lights, uh, to pretty much everything. Uh, the only thing that we really have to do is feed and make sure they have clean water uh, and clean the front of the glass because the frogs always leave the residues. You know, uh, we do use some foggers uh, with a couple of my terrariums, the ZooMed foggers. Uh, they're really nice. And I also use some of the Exoterra fountains or waterfalls. 
Just keep in mind that if you choose to use a compact enclosed moving water source, you need to pull it and clean it at least once every three days because it's dark. Guess what grows in a dark, wet space? Bacteria and fungus. What, what, what gets stuck in the crevices of the water? Crickets, isopods, roaches. So if you choose to use the in-tank things to help stimulate drinking and other things like that, I always tell people to disinfect them at least, you know, at least once a week. But the foggers I have found to be extremely helpful with neonatal animals. Um, because sometimes, at least I've had young chameleons hate mist kings. Like they would get so so pissed off that they would all huddle huddle in the corner away from it, even though it wasn't misting anywhere near them. And then by the time that they would be so unangry to go and actually drink the droplets, it would almost be gone. Almost be gone. So I found the fogger to be not as intrusive to them, depending on the size of the cage, while still giving them some of the moisture content that they need. Yeah. I mean, foggers sometimes have a bad rap, but really it's ventilation. Like as long as you have adequate ventilation, like you can't just like fog it. So it's just like in the mist and they'll never be able to breathe. Like as long as there's good vents, foggers are actually okay. You're right. Ventilation and drainage are keys. So like, you know, like, so for a dart frog, do not use a fogger. Absolutely not because they need a solid glass cage. But if you have like an 18 by 18, 24 exo tower with a crested gecko in it with a drainage layer, and you want to use a ZooMed fogger to go off 20 seconds, three times a day, it'll be okay yeah. because there's enough airflow at the top and the front to, you know, to allow those humidity spikes to recede. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What about, what about water spots? Like what, what kind of water do you run through the, the mist king? Because I find like yes. water gets, you get spots all over the glass. Is that something you just yes. put up with or? So, uh, I actually have an agreement, a business account with Sparklets Corp down here, which owns like AquaClear and a bunch of other stuff. So I get RODI water, um, in these big five gallon buckets and I, and the five gallon containers. And I get 24 of them delivered a week because I have them all over my warehouse for my staff because it gets so freaking hot down here. Um, so that's all I use. We don't get as many water spots, but I recommend either using like, um, if you, if for a misking system, because of how fine the mesh is, you cannot use treated tap water. It will ruin the, it will ruin the nozzles and the pieces within a couple months. You always just want to use, uh, you know, uh, RODI or distilled water, but distilled water doesn't have anything in it. So, um, if you're dealing with amphibians or something like that, you might want to consider like, adding electrolytes or something like that. I can't yeah. remember all the time. Yeah, I've, I've heard people kind of straying away from distilled just because there, it's yep. just H2O and there's no minerals yep. or anything in it and you can... That's right. Yeah. And the in terms of like, when we think bioactive, we often think tropical, but arid bioactive is just is a thing you can do as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So my bearded dragon and thousands of others now at this point is living proof. Uh, I got to tell you, when, when Animal Planet flew me out to California to do that, to do that show, man, that was so humbling and crazy to see these big wig people have an appreciation for the arid bioactive because they said, Josh, we've never seen anything like this before. This is amazing. And, you know, you obviously, I always recommend the BioShot with it, but there's a lot of options that you can use for an arid substrate. You can use superworms, 
that evolve into those black beetles. You can use earwigs. You can use your desert, your drier species of isopods like powder blues, giant oranges. If you can find the springtails, they're almost always mislabeled, by the way. 99% of sellers selling tropical pink springtails and this and that. Um, they're always columbolas or, or balsamians. Um, it, I was, when, when I closed Genesis and I had to sell all those springtail lines that I said, I knew I lost a fortune because I was one of the only people to actually have the real actual springtails that were actually being sold to the correct thing. So finding springtails that work for arid mixes is challenging, but I will have them very soon, I promise. Um, and with the springtails in the arid, arid setups, you're always going to find them in the same portions of the cage. You're going to find them underneath the water dish at the very bottom of the substrate. The isopods, you're going to find in the woods. Your cork bark, your grapevine, your ghost wood, um, your leaf litter, and at the bases of the plants. Your earwigs are going to be all throughout the substrate. And if you have a, an, an arid setup, highly, highly, highly recommend earwigs. You can find them almost anywhere in the United States. Um, and while they may look scary and while they're really ugly, they're harmless. And they are probably the best soil aerators there is that I personally had experience with. They're even better than the superworms. You just obviously want to make sure you're keeping your populations in check to make sure that one isn't outcompeting the other. Right. So uh, I just have like, two more questions for you and then I'll, yeah. we've, we've already gone through the whole 60 minutes. So in, in terms of those, the arid species, as well as snakes, bioactive, like these are animals that are producing quite a lot of waste yes. at, at, at once rather than like a gecko or something. So is there anything specific you do to tackle that? So if you're dealing with a large snake, you need to let the, the terrarium settle. So for example, uh, my carpet python, he's a wonderful example, Smithers. He's in a 36, 18 by 36, and he has seven and a half inches of thermal with no drainage layer. That snake takes poops, huge poops. <laughs> so initially I had to spot clean his tank for about three months. And then after everything got established, I don't do anything, dude. The isopods break it down or if the isopods aren't breaking it down, it gets covered in the white fuzz and uh, the microbes from the bio shot. And it is literally broken down in three days. And all of my snake enclosures, snake skin does not last longer than 24 hours really i'm not kidding dude um like i actually the moment they shed i make my employees pull out the shed for the reptile experience for the kids so they can sit and touch it because if we don't pull it right away it's gone it, it's gone and and again it's just giving your time tank your tank time to acclimate and making sure that you know if you're pro as long as you are providing the right husbandry for your animal and as long as your base layer is correct it will take care of itself i promise here's a fun fact 99 percent of the time springtails will just automatically show up yes 99 percent. 99 percent of the time you might not see them but you'll see these little tiny white things in there guarantee you springtails or soil some types of soil mites are almost in everything you know, just like grain mites are in our cereal. Grain mites are in the fruit fly media. They're in everything. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. So as long as you start with the spot clean for maybe three, four, five months, eventually this it'll take over and you just kind of have to watch it. Exactly. And so if you're using just my bio shot with no bugs, 
it takes a little bit. It takes about three months because you have to let all those organic processes spread throughout the soil. And then as the plants grow, the root bases get stronger. The roots help aerate the soil, provide more nitrifying opportunities, which creates more byproducts. More byproducts means more organic breakdown. But if you're trying to go with, you know, the springtails, the isopods, honestly, if you put in two dozen, if you put in two dozen springtails, two dozen isopods of, you know, your larger species and like a 20 long 40 breeder, you'll have that thing going in a month and a half. You know, it, it doesn't take long, especially if you're given the isopods and the springtails, the fuel, because, you know, they breed like there's no tomorrow, Yeah, you know? Yeah. That's very cool. So the, the very last question I had for you is what about gnats? Do you, do you deal with, with fungus oh, gnats? I had, I dealt, there was about a year and a half ago. Um, I got, huh, I, while we were away and my Miss King malfunctioned and put five gallons of water amongst all my ter terrariums in the weekend, which water clogged everything. I was able to salvage 60% of everything by letting it dry out without no misting or anything like that, like the snake enclosures, some other stuff, but about two of them got gnats from it. I pretty much had to completely dry that tank out and, you know, recycle it back to get rid of them. Gnats can come, come from a few sources. So um, they love oversaturated soil. If you get gnats, Chances are your soil has a little bit too much moisture in it. And if that's the case, cut back your misting and then they will go away. Another way that you can try to combat the gnats is you can just get a little cup of apple cider vinegar with some Dawn dish soap and have it bubble up. They're attracted to the smell. They'll fly into it, get stuck and drown. Um, but I've never had a consistent overall issue time and time again with gnats. But I know some people have, and it also depends on where you live as well. That's, that's a huge factor. Just like with maintaining your humidity in your terrarium. If you live in, in Pennsylvania, you know, you have to miss that cage two times a day if you want it to be really high. Whereas if you're in Texas, dude, once every other day, cause it's a tropical, Houston's tropical at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I always find like I go through waves like in usually in the summer there'll be a few weeks where I just get like gnats and they're just so annoying yeah. and and, and yeah. that's when I have the most humid and then in the winter it's like 10% humidity where I am so I don't really have to worry about it. So that's a good point just letting the soil dry out a little bit and and then you can yes. capture them too. Well, Josh, thank you so much for oh, for yeah, joining yeah. me today. Uh, this is a great story and honestly, uh I I can't wait to I'm going to definitely try out some of your products cuz I'm redoing some of my day gecko or my day gecko enclosure so I'm going to I think uh, reptiles oh, okay. are us supplies uh, bio dude. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get my phytosanitary certificates to ship my uh substrates into Canada. It's just very 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 hard to get. Yeah. Um, yeah, I bet. So, I'm working on it Canada. I am trying to get my soils to you. I'm working so hard. But the diets and stuff are over there. I yeah, know. yeah. He has the five a shot and the diets. So awesome. that's a And then in terms of for, for everybody else, where can they, I mean, most people from listening are, are from the United States. So where can people find you and, and your products and, and your business? So obviously, uh, the biodude.com. You can also, I have lots of different resellers in the United States from Dallas, Fort Worth, Reptarium, the scales and tails. Uh, I can just do to some pet supplies plus stores. Um, you know, I've been working real hard with my wholesale. So, 
Um, you can find me in some stores. If you're not sure, you can email us, but you know, mainly, you know, my website. And if you're here in Texas, come to my store, the bio Dude Houston open Monday through Friday, eight to four. You can come see my showroom, come see animals. Um, and of course meet the dude and, you know, see some and build your terrarium, you know? All right. That is great. Thank you very much, Josh. It was a pleasure chatting with you. It was a pleasure, dude. Thank you so much for your time and hosting me on the show. I appreciate it. All right. Just when you think the episode's over, it's not over. <laughs> I After I listened to this episode, a couple weeks later, Josh and I recorded this episode probably like five or six weeks ago at this point. And after I re-listened to it, I had another question about snake bioactivity, specifically for snakes that spend all of their time or most of their time on the ground. I was wondering how you accomplish making a bioactive environment without running into high moisture issues. Obviously, bioactivity, when you have a bioactive enclosure, you're dealing with a lot of moist and damp substrate for the most part. And I was wondering how you avoid, you know, scale rot or fungal disease and, or, or, you know, respiratory infections and whatnot. So Josh was absolutely nice enough to record himself answering that question for me. And he sent it to me via email and I will let that play now. Okay. So when you are dealing with snakes and bioactive, I actually get this question all the time. All of us know that, you know, snakes can be prone to scale rot, fungal infection, upper respiratory infections, a bunch of different stuff. Um, and that was one of my biggest things of combating those things with going to keep snakes on bio. So some of the things that I always recommend for all snakes. So the number one rule of thumb with snakes is that they're always going to burrow. It doesn't matter what type of snake you have. It is in their nature to burrow, regardless if you have a Burmese python or a little corn snake. So it's very imperative as a keeper that you are not only providing enough substrate that you know, that allows for the encouragement of that behavior, but you need a substrate that also is gonna aerate top to bottom to prevent moist stagnant pockets. So I don't use drainage layers at all for snakes. I will never recommend a drainage layer for a snake for multiple reasons. One, the drainage layer is always gonna have, potentially have bought water at the bottom. What's going to happen with that water is it's slowly going to evaporate out of the drainage layer into the soil. But what that's going to do is that medium is always going to be wet. Even regardless if you're using a screen, uh, what's going to happen is when your snake goes down and burrows, you know, we're, you're going to be exposing your snake to that constant over wetness that comes with drainage layers, which could be a potential problem. Another potential problem is the snake moving the screen, if you're using a screen, and mixing up the drainage layer with the substrate, which then you'd have an even bigger issue. I say the same things with people that have chubby frogs, Pac-Man frogs, uh, you know, don't use a drainage layer. I highly recommend, you know, using a soil that highly aerates from top to bottom. Uh, and that's why I designed my firma. So the terra firma, which is what of my soils that I recommend for most snakes uh, is, is, you know, it will retain all tunnels and burrows. It stays dry on the top layer and moist in the middle and bottom layers. So it's gonna give your snake options to be able to A, uh, get away from the humidity if they wanna get away from the humidity or B, get with the humidity, you know, to help them shed, hydrate, respirate, all that good stuff. So to prevent scale rot and other issues such as 
respiratory infections and things like that. It's imperative that obviously you're following the husbandry practices that are required for the animal, but you are also making sure that your soil is not becoming oversaturated, that there are dry portions in the soil, i.e. the top layer, that will make sure that you are able to provide the proper humidity gradients into the soil. Um, a lot of people might have, you know, issues with that if, you know, if they don't know how to create their homemade mix that aerates from top to bottom. So if you are creating your homemade mixes, which I recommend you do whatever you want to do, as long as it thoroughly aerates and thoroughly retains the tunnels and burrows, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. Uh, you know, and that's mainly for terrestrial snakes. When you're dealing with, you know, your, your snakes that are arboreal, such as your chondros, your Amazon tree boas and other things like that. They, as far as if they burrow, I, I haven't had enough experience with them to know that, you know, that they, that they burrow or uh, that they will burrow at different times or often, but it's still something you need to take into consideration. So if you need to absolutely use a drainage layer with a snake, um, I would highly recommend my Super Grow, which is just expanded uh, pond medium that is used to catch large particles in ponds. I cut it down to size and use that as a drainage layer with the Firma. But if you're dealing with a really high humidity snake, you know, uh, an eyelash viper or, you know, something like that, just as an example, you're going to want to make sure that if you use a drainage layer, that it's not something that the snake can ruin. It's not something that the soil that you're using with the drainage layer, you need to make sure that your animal has easy access to go into the soil and get out. Because the last thing you want is to have, not necessarily saying the snake's going to get trapped, but making it harder to get out of where it needs to be. Uh, and that's another nice thing about having a really good soil that aerates is you can put, you know, your, your temperature humidity probe in the soil. It'll tell you exactly where it's at. So that's something that you can also look at to see how well of the thermo and humidity gradients that you're providing in a closed ecosystem. So overall, making sure your husbandry is on point, making sure that your soil aerates and making sure that, you know, that if you're going to use a drainage layer, that it's foolproof. Uh, and again, I'd recommend my terra firma, uh, you know, to, you know, to make that from happening. But again, you can use whatever homemade mix that you want that you feel is going to work with keeping, you know, terrestrial snakes on bioactive. With snake feces, another thing that I might have not mentioned is, you know, the Bioshod's definitely going to help with all of that. Um, but I do highly recommend putting other types of cleaners in there, obviously, to A, help with aeration, uh, structure for your burrows, as well as help with plants. Um, I'd recommend, you know, if you're going with a more arid species like powder blue isopods um, and into springtails. And if you're going with like, you know, a humid species that likes a lot more humidity than normal, uh, I'd recommend like dwarf white isopods and, you know, your springtails. You can also use things like dermistead beetles in a drier environment. Uh, if it's a really humid environment, some people may choose to use like red wigglers um, as they'll also create a byproduct of worm castings, which are extremely beneficial to your soil. So there's a lot of different avenues that you can do to help incorporate the bioactivity into your bioactive terrariums for different types of snakes. 
Okay, now we are officially at the end of the episode. So thank you so much for listening. I'm very glad to hear that many of you guys are enjoying the content the podcast is producing. So thanks a lot for listening. Josh, thank you very much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate you telling your story. Uh, Really fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for answering that little extra question at the end and taking some time out of your day to do that. That was great. Make sure to check out the Advancing Herpetological Husbandry Conference at the end of September, September 28th, 29th in Rodea, New Mexico. The notes are below. You can check out, see if you can uh, take some time off work and go check out that conference. If you are interested in supporting Animals at Home, go to animalsathome.ca slash podcast and there's a bunch of different ways you can support the show there. I will talk to you guys next time.